Alright, so, uh, welcome back everyone, episode 3, I'm here with one of my long-term friends, I've talked with him a lot about U.S. politics and obviously other politics um, since middle school, we went to middle school together, and he's changed a lot, and he's learned a lot, he's a very, uh, he's a very diligent political thinker, uh, his name is Alec, if you want to say a little bit about yourself really quick, because uh, we messed up the stream a couple minutes ago, um, go for it, here you go. Uh, yeah, my name is Alec, as Anthony said, we went to middle school together, and then I transferred to international school for high school, and I'm mainly interested right now in diplomacy, international relations, language, and just current events, so right now I'm majoring in uh, Russian studies and international development at Colgate. Mm -hmm. Excellent, so yeah, it totally links into uh, what you were... Um what we've been talking about through middle school and high school, so I'm so really excellent. I'm so happy that you can make it here. Uh, so I know you to be a very cultural person. I've seen posts of you at concerts and things like that, so uh, I'm really fo trying to focus on that as our opening segment. So if you could just give a, a quick little kind of freelance as to what you think about the culture, music, sports, films, things like that, um, if you could give your kind of take on that right now, and we'll kind of go back and forth with this. Yeah, so I definitely think right now, and even within, you know, quarantine in particular, this is a very culturally creative time for a lot of people. Uh, I definitely do, to a certain extent, like, you know, the, the state of today's culture, although there's a lot of things that could be fixed. But when it, there's a lot to be said about our political culture as well, which I think has evolved significantly. When you talk to, you know, our older, you know, our parents' generation and older generations, they'll say, you know, even though we had significant hardships in our life, and listen, my parents had some serious hardships in our life mm -hmm. as, you know, immigrants and refugees, but they even say in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s in the U.S., the situation was far less divisive and far more politically stable, mm -hmm. and people were able to talk about politics in a non-controversial way, whereas in our mind, I feel like that's like a word association, association game. Controversy and politics, they just go together. So, I, I, I certainly do think that to a certain extent, the culture has devolved. The, the social media political culture is definitely very toxic. For We were talking about how people put things on their stories and people expect others to automatically repost those. And if they don't, they don't care about people dying. And, you know, I try to be careful about what I post in terms of politics on Instagram. I try to manicure it and I try to express what I want to say as concisely as possible. I don't find it productive to only post these little you know, multicolored reposts of other people, like why you should care about dot, dot, dot. I try to, you know, sometimes add a bit of my own thoughts in there. But, you know, just the, the whole repost culture, the whole political pressuring others to believe in your politics, while at the same time complaining that activism is too hollow and too empty on Instagram. I just think these people have sort of lost the plot a little bit. Totally. I mean, uh, the thing is, I guess I'll play devil's advocate here because uh, I totally agree with you on that standpoint. I don't really like how um, a lot of social media accounts have kind of forced political conversation. And even in attempting to force the political conversation, again, they don't like to hear the different the other side. They don't like to be disagreed with, which is something you mentioned uh, about what it used to be like earlier. So to play devil's advocate here a little bit... Um, if someone were to hypothetically bring up a social change that would affect everyone, say, community relations with police, and they didn't simply they, they simply didn't have the number support, the amount of people that could back this uh, desire, back this idea, wouldn't activism then be necessary here, or would it not? Or what are your general thoughts on that? 
Well, it's not even to argue that activism is unnecessary, because I think our activism and even the word, even though, you know, particularly in right-wing circles, it's considered to be sort of a joke of a word, but, you know, advocating for social justice is important, and it can be important, and there's plenty of examples in which social justice needs to be upheld. But the way in which they're doing it is sort of this mob mentality, right? They're saying things like one phrase that sticks out to me in particular is your silence is definite. They, 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 they try to guilt people, apolitical people, and most people I would say are apolitical, particularly teenagers, mm-hmm. right? Because some of the you know national policy issues are gonna affect us on a much lower level than they would, for example, our parents who pay taxes. Mm-hmm. So I would say the way in which they try to do this, the way in which they try to pressure people who really couldn't care less about these issues into posting and who are very, very, you know, don't know, if you ask them outside of social media, they don't know a lot about these issues, but they just repost because they see everybody else doing it, they feel it's the right thing to do, and they associate not posting with not caring about, you know, people's deaths, people's illness, people's misfortune, that sort of thing. Honestly, I think that personally, I'm trying to give, I'm trying to use this platform to encourage this Daryl Davis type of discussion that I'm such so fond of. He's a total proponent for this open conversation. He says, let's talk about race. Let's talk about society. That And this conversation is, I have to admit, even though I am going to stay centrist and impartial here, I see that much more on the left side of politics. I see much more of this censoring. I see much more of this um, cutting out of the opposition uh, of the opposition's ideas and it's it's a little hypocritical it's a little totalitarian i'm not going to say it's not present on the other side but i will say that i notice it substantially more on the left side than i do the right so i will make that kind of proclamation about that uh i'm going to move on to foreign policy more uh we talked about soft power and hard power before the stream broke um so soft power is obviously, for people in the stream watching or whoever is going to listen to this episode, soft power is really kind of diplomatic means. Obviously, hard power is more about military means. So the question I want to ask you, we went over this in detail, just kind of restate what you were saying. Um, the question I want to ask you is, do you prefer an interventionist standpoint of America, which has its issues, we've seen that in the past, or a non-interventionist America, which, again, we've also seen. Good examples of both. You've got non-interventionist America during the Holocaust. You've got it during uh, the World, World War II, obviously letting Germany expand in Europe. And then cases of interventionism you see in when Muammar Gaddafi was killed um, due to moving from an airstrike that was authorized by Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton. So you can see the issues of both inter- interventionalism and non-interventionalism. What do you prefer and why? Well, I think that's a very, you know, it's a big question. And I think it depends on what region we're talking about, what the conflict is, and what, you know, what are the factors involved, right? So I think America very often goes into countries, intervenes in countries, where it has very little understanding of the domestic demographic composition of the country and what the internal dynamics are. So for example, when we invaded Iraq, we invaded the country, we took control of most important assets, we deposed the government of Saddam Hussein, Mm -hmm. and Saddam Hussein was a Sunni Arab. Now, Iraq is made up of Sunni Arabs, Shia Arabs, and Sunni Kurds, who are not Arabs. This is a very important dynamic just for the framework of the country. And the destruction of, you know, these systems that had been around for so long made that framework fall apart. We saw ethnic cleansing in Iraq. We saw sectarianism. We see sectarianism in Iraq. 
we see, you know, the way Kurds are treated in Iraq. We see, you know, the conflicts going on between Shias and Sunnis in Iraq. And it, it repeats itself all over the world. So I think one important thing we need to do is before we access this hard power, before we access military intervention, we need to make sure we have experts who understand what the cultural implications of this will be and what is the makeup on the ground, what is actually going to happen in terms of people's identities, etc. In terms of soft power, I think there are plenty of ways that we can exert our soft power and achieve our foreign, our foreign objectives, maybe not necessarily more quickly, but more effectively than if we were to just do military intervention. I think there's plenty of examples in which we have done this in the past. Um, I think we use a lot of our soft power in Latin America, even though historically we have also used a, a significant degree of hard power. Um, and I think we continue to use our soft power in Europe. You know what I mean? Even though Europe, a lot of the times, likes to make fun of Trump, make fun of our administration, uh, sort of put on this little bit, I'm better than you, kind of holier than thou, perhaps. Um, you know, America is still responsible for defending the entirety of the European Union. And there's plenty of aggressive actors who would like to see the European Union dismantled, namely Russia. So that's one way in which we exert our soft power. It's a little bit of a fusion of soft power and hard power, which is called smart power. But it's still, you know, not direct military. Mm -hmm. uh, I totally agree that you bring up these international organizations. I personally, I don't think the UN is doing its job. And I'm going to explain why. Uh, the UN was established to prevent obviously war. It was established after the World War II period to prevent a global and continental hegemony like what happened with Germany. I think now, I think that countries participating in the UN are not uh, strong enough politically and foreign policy-wise to condemn the actions of, say, China, who has been basically ethnic ethnically cleansing a whole religion of people. Um, so I think that the U.S. and Trump's policy of actually sanctioning China and pulling troops out kind of signifies independence from the U.N. And I personally think it's, it's, a, it's one step in a larger scheme of us pulling out from the U.N. So what do you think about the use of the U.N., our participation in it, and other things like that? Just your general idea on that. Okay, yeah. So with full discretion, I'm just going to say on stream, my high school was the United Nations International School. And it was a school which is 40% made up of children of UN diplomats, meaning they come from all over the world, they speak all different languages, and the remaining 60% are really just kids from New York with either an interest in this or they just, for some reason, ended up going to the school because it was close. I loved going to the school and I think it was fantastic, although there are some problems. And to be honest, I, you know, right now I'm not particularly fond of the state of the school. When it comes to the UN, however, I would say that after the Second World War, the UN played a very, very critical function in mediating the Cold War. And there is a reason, not just mutually assured destruction, but there is a reason why, you know, direct war didn't ever occur between the Soviet Union and the United States in a long-term sense. And I think a lot of people at the UN for a long time saw their role as just international mediators. And not international in the sense of the word of outside of my own country, but inter between nations. They weren't necessarily focused on domestic policies of certain countries. You know, as the UN expanded, it added refugee councils, it added human rights councils. You know, I think the Commission on Human Rights is a good idea of them being very, very critical. They didn't really account for the fact that they don't have much hard power to enforce these decisions. And especially when the structure of the, you know, 
the, the structure of the organization is to give fair and equal you know representation to all countries all countries conserved on any committee all you know the two out of the five countries on the security councils are very significant human rights abusers and just this idea where you try to apply a very western liberal idea of human rights of, of self-determination of just generally a broad neoliberal approach to a set of countries many 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 of whom have not progressed from theocracy have not progressed from authoritarianism have not progressed from you know limitation of civil rights and liberties and many of whom are actually regressing back in that direction mm -hmm. and you have these countries leading committees on issues that they are actively responsible for perpetuating so for example turkey is on uh, several uh, human rights committees in the un it leads several human rights committees on the un the big controversy was that saudi arabia was the head of the committee for the advancement of women so it's in a tremendous amount of irony and a tremendous amount of hypocrisy and also a tremendous amount of ineffectiveness and i would certainly agree with you there but the role of the un i believe needs to be sort of first of all downsized <laughs> and second of all repurposed so i think there are plenty of other frameworks in which we can achieve these human rights objectives i believe that even the un just putting it in paper that's beneficial that's useful Mm -hmm. But with the amount of funding that they're being given to do what they do, while not actually achieving it, is breeding corruption that I've seen firsthand. And it's breeding a sort of self-righteousness where I don't really have to do anything, but just because we wrote this piece of paper with a list of human rights, I can sort of get away with this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certain functions of the UN, I would say, are certainly, it's certainly beneficial, and I agree with, but yeah, there's a lot that can be reformed. Totally. Um, I really want to cite here the ineffectiveness with regards to the response to China. You talked about corruption, and you talked actually before the stream broke uh, about um, cheap, quick labor, how people were going to get away with that, as China does infringe upon its workers. It's not entirely the best or the environmentally healthiest country. Um, I think that obviously the UN's response to China infringing upon the rights of their of an entire religion in their country has been pretty weak and I think that's what I cite most about the failure of the UN I think as a diplomatic body I don't think that they have done really well in, in terms of providing the branches that they seek I mean they did an excellent job with decolonization obviously but Britain was kind of financially and militarily uh, kind of uh, wasted after the second world war so they couldn't really politically hold on to those colonies anyway um, so I think that uh, in terms of obviously faction, you have IGOs, intergovernmental inter organizations that form alliances for common goals. I don't think those common goals are being totally realized. You brought up how Saudi Arabia is ahead of a committee on, on women's rights. I want to go, go even back, I love this time frame, to like 19, the 1930s. I mean, you know, Neville Chamberlain signed a paper handing over the Sudetenland to Germany and thought that world peace was restored. It's clear that I think the that when we relate this obviously to the present time, I think that these the UN and these big conglomerate nations or groups of nations, I think are really only uh, uh, effective in preventing global hegemony and hard power takeover. That's really it because China is the number one exporter of transport cars. So obviously other nations that China is exporting to and they have a they get huge profit from it obviously are not going to try to risk you know uh, breaking relations with their number one trader so 
that being said, I kind of wanted to move on. You brought up your high school. I wanted to move on to uh, another ex- another segment here. Um, education. We look at uh, how teachers are skewing information, whichever way they can, obviously. Um, I want to just ask you if you've had personal experience of what you've personally known is to be biased based on obviously your experiences or whatever with teachers and things like that. I just kind of wanted your take on that before we go more into foreign policy. And I want to touch on obviously what's happening in the caucuses later. That's a big strong spot for you. So I definitely want to touch on the later, but I want to focus on some domestic social issues now. So just your take on education and skewing of information. Well, in my personal experience, I would definitely say that there were, throughout middle school, there were, you know, several teachers who, when we weren't even talking about political issues, would perhaps like to involve their politics and things. It was much more present in high school. Um, And as a matter of fact, in my, when I joined my global politics class, which was one of the main reasons I came to my high school, because that was a class that they offered and I wanted to take uh, in junior year, I came under the impression, and it was told to me many, many times, like, listen, if you don't share your teacher's opinion, she is going to mark you down. So I was, you know, I I didn't know what I was going to do when I met this lady, right? I end up meeting her, I end up staying in her class, and I realized that to discuss a lot of these issues is so separate from your own personal political beliefs, it's unbelievable. So I actually managed to get an incredibly high grade in that class. But I looked, and I think part of this is due to the fact that I was looking at our content, I was looking at our material, and I was looking at, you know, just the general structures and rules that you wanted us to remember, and not applying my own political perspective to it, just imagining it within the lens of somebody else. And that's what she taught us to do. There are plenty of different lenses from which you can view, you know, things like history and politics. There's Marxist lens, there's neoliberal lens, there's, con- you know, there's realist lenses, there's plenty of, you know, and they call them lenses because, you know, that's just your perspective, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I think that looking through these lenses is incredibly beneficial, regardless of what your political beliefs are. I can look through a Marxist lens and say, you know what, Marx wrote this, this is how it's manifesting itself in our society today. I agree with that. That doesn't necessarily make me a Marxist. Mm-hmm. It just means when I understand it from his dialectic, I can, you know, look at things perhaps a little bit more differently and understand the world around me a little better. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of just general skewing of information and bias in education, I think in the universities it's a tremendous issue, and that's mm-hmm. why I spent a significant amount of time, you know, researching things about bias within uh, schools. And I, you know, in my experience thus far, Colgate has largely lived up to his expectations there are certainly professors who are biased um but i would from my understanding it's a little less so than in other schools um and they certainly are very very open to free speech free debate open communication there was a speaker named fiona hill she used to be the uh special liaison for russian affairs to the president she worked under bush and she worked under obama and she actually went to russia with obama um, to meet with Putin several times. So she's a very, very educated woman, and she uh, was coming with an organization called the Foundation for the Advancement of Western Civilization and the Facilitation of Free Speech. Some long nonsense name. But essentially, they work with a lot of these different organizations who tend to be a little more right-wing, 
um, while at the same time having a lot of, you know, deeply left-wing philosophy ingrained in their everyday activities, particularly when it comes to things like diversity training, which I'm not necessarily against, but the way in which diversity training is done is A, excessive, and be uh, vastly ideological in a lot of circumstances. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's a big issue. I totally agree with that. Honestly, that's I feel again when I look when I when people ask me to define exactly what a centrist is, I don't really say it's kind of middle of the road. I describe more of what you said. You're very open to the opposite viewpoint. You read some of Marx's work, uh, Karl Marx's work, and you were some you agreed with a few of the points that made sense to you. That's what I think, again, we need more of in the schools, especially in universities, that obviously there are kids that get kicked out for showing certain political views. Actually, at Bing, um, a person in one of the dorms almost got kicked out of the residential life for having a Trump flag and a, and a Blue Lives Matter flag, which you know are things that could be disagreed with, but there's no real way, there's no reason that they should be totally silenced and forced out so i totally get what you're saying i under i also understand your uh proposition of ignoring political context when in education i think that's a very good tip for people in high school currently that are kind of putting up with this even if you're on the right or the left obviously every community is different so i think you raised some excellent points there uh with that um i'm going to actually transition to our next segment which is going to be on media and this is actually something i'm a little bit more passionate about as you probably see in the previous episodes but what do you think about now we've talked about education's uh standpoint with regards to information and ideology brewing what is your standpoint on how social media is going about this what they show us what they don't show us your thoughts on that social media is just you know i think one of the most telling examples of the paradigm shift in the United States is when Mark Zuckerberg was called to testify in front of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And you had our just decrepit and un, like to, to a large extent on this subject, uneducated senators just sitting up there, many of them practically on life support, having no idea what this man is talking about and the context in which he makes his money. They're asking these ridiculous questions. He's like, so how do you make money on Facebook? He asked a senator, I forget who it was, asked this to Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) in front of the entire nation. So clearly, our political officials have a large amount of catching up to do when it comes to the state of social media today. Mm. And I think it was also the 2016 election, which showed to many people, okay, social media was important. Social media played a large role in this election, and it's going to play an even larger role in the next election. So I think in terms of when it comes to people saying, you know, ads, one-sided ads, I think that's just a straw man they build up, although it's true. But it's mainly sort of this kind of boomer thing of like, I see political ads on Facebook and that's where I get my news from. I think trying to say that that's as big as an issue as it is, particularly for our generation, is demeaning. Mm-hmm. Because it's not true. Because I know very few people who get their information solely from Facebook ads. I think a bigger issue could perhaps be the Instagram pop-up reposts, which aren't much better, mm-hmm. but at least it's not done, you know, through an, someone buying it and advertising it. It's just sort of this very, so, sort of the, the fast food of activism, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. It's quick, it's easy, it's accessible, all you have to do is click repost and everybody sees it. Um, when it comes to social media within this election, I think that, you know, a lot of people, I think Biden in a large way dominates the social media sphere mm-hmm. although trump it, 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 but that's only because you know and that's in my personal experience i'm i'm 
from New York. I went to a liberal school. Most of my friends are liberals. I see pro-Biden stuff all over Instagram. That's to be expected. I think Trump, however, harnessed the power of social media far better than any other candidate has ever, just in general. Mm -hmm. He was able to sort of make himself into a meme. Mm-hmm. And he understands what that means. I think people don't give Trump enough credit for that. Mm-hmm. I think Trump understands the extent to which he is a character, the extent to which he is a symbol, and the extent to which things around him and, and, and symbols he uses are widely circulated throughout the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with those viewpoints, honestly. I'm going to say, though, that when I see... Okay, okay, when I see so- certain social media platforms, specifically Snapchat, comes to my mind. You have Now This, which is a story that almost always pops up on my feed, things like that. The issue comes to me when it's not like political ads, which are definitely a thing, but that's really just, you know, an allotment of campaign spending. I don't think that's really the big issue here that I see with social media. I think it's that these independent or pretending to be independent companies try to prevent this quote unquote impartial news for example now this during the presidential debate they only fact checked trump i did not see a fact check for biden which is alarming to me because i want to see both sides of the debate i want to see if biden has switched sides on his fracking policy i want to see if he truly knows about what's happening with hunter biden and they provide this one side interpretation you could also see this again with Obviously, Fox News, too. I'm not going to say it's not on both sides. But I think, and I'm going to keep reinforcing this, I think that while Trump has obviously cemented himself as a, as a uh, mogul, a media mogul, I think it's also kind of working against him. Because when leftist, primarily leftist media, warps his words and insinuates things that he has not said, for example, when they brought up how he failed to denounce white supremacy, which someone who was looking at this impartially, I saw him denounce white supremacy multiple times in press conferences and things like that granted he definitely should have used stronger wording the debate but it's again it's very up to interpretation and i think that's the issue with media information i think is a human right i think it's a very necessary human right almost as necessary as food drinking water and things like that and i think when you skew it without what you when you skew it in a way that you don't entirely give off the message that you're biased you don't give off the message that you're you know, preferring one side, I think that's a huge detriment to the information that people in the voter-eligible range are getting. So that's my personal take on that. I'm going to move on to the next segment because I want to kind of move this along a little bit more smoothly because we have the debate at 9 p.m. and obviously this video is going to take a pretty long while to buffer. So now we're going to kind of get into the meat of this, and that would be what's happening in the Caucasus, what's happening with Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, the border conflict that's happening. If you want to give some of the viewers context on what's happening, go ahead and do that. I kind of know enough about the situation to hopefully have a formal debate about it. Um, and I have a feeling, obviously, given what you posted, I agree with you. But I'll play devil's advocate a bit without hopefully not sounding like someone who supports war crimes. But anyway, um, just give a little bit of context, maybe side your side of the story, and we'll kind of bounce off of that, of what's happening in the caucuses. Oh, he must have left. Did he leave? Okay, he left. Okay, we'll try to improvise this. Um, So basically, um, what's happening in the caucuses is, I think, a... um, 
Well, obviously you have Ar- Armenia and Azerbaijan having a border conflict over a disputed territory. I don't know what that territory is. I don't know a lot of specific details. Um, but this um, has been, obviously it's dragged in Turkey, which has historic relations to Armenia and Azerbaijan. You have the Armenian genocide. You have the Kurd, the genocide of the Kurds, too. And reports are showing that they are not allowing journalists to... Per- to <laughs> I see the stream chat. Um that journalists are not reporting the Armenian side of this and that um, supplies from the U.S. planes are being blocked because they can't use Turkish airports. So I think that's a another fault of the U.N. that, again, these countries, Turkey and Azerbaijan, need to be seriously investigated um, for um, obviously not upholding human rights. And you said, Alex said before, that Turkey is a member of the Human Rights Council in the U.N. So... Obviously, things like that um, are a little bit of an issue to me. Um, it's unfortunate that he disconnected because he actually posts a lot about the conflict. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get him back on uh, and just sit tight while I do. Alright, so he's back, which is great. Um, so I'm just going to pan this over. So the question we left off on was um, your thoughts on the... Uh, or give some context or thoughts, whatever you want to do. Obviously, this is your time. Um, just thoughts and context on what's happening in the caucuses right now. So, pan over to you. Here we go. Right. So, the the situation in um, Armenia, Azerbaijan is actually, you know, a lot of people, I think, like to forget historical context sometimes. And I like a lot that, you know, a lot of the reposts you're seeing do provide this historical context. So, just to get into that a little bit, you know, this region of what is today politically Azerbaijan is called Nagorno-Karabakh in their language and Artsakh in Armenian. And historically, and I'm not, you know, a propagandist, and I will admit, historically, this has been a mixed region. There have been eras in history where this was a majority Azeri region. There have been plenty of eras in history where this has been an Armenian region. Uh, but in most you know, in the most recent modern history, this has always been a region of Armenia. Now, what you saw happening during the Soviet Union was a lot of these constituent republics, um, when there was some sort of political tension between them and Moscow, so for example, uh, a really good equivalency to this is right after the death of Stalin, uh, who in Ukraine perpetrated an allegedly, you know, uh, famine genocide against the Ukrainian population, many accused Stalin of trying to wipe Ukrainians out entirely, the relations between the Ukrainian Socialist Republic and the, you know, federal, you know, government in Moscow was very poor. So what Khrushchev did is he gave a Russian-majority region, Crimea, to Ukraine in order to appease them. This brought them greater military bases in their republic, it was more better for tourism, uh, but overall, Crimea was still a part of the Soviet Union, just as it had always been. It's like, consider if New York gave Staten Island over to New Jersey. Still part of America, doesn't make travel there any less different, it's just technically part of a different state. Now when the Soviet Union broke up, that's when the issues started to present themselves, right? So a very similar situation happened in uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh or Azak was given to uh, Azerbaijan, even though it had an Armenian majority. Uh, the war, uh, one war broke out right after the independence of these two countries and it lasted for quite a long time uh, and there were many, many deaths. But now there's a status quo in the region. Now what makes this new conflict particularly dangerous and particularly interesting for me as somebody who studies foreign policy 
is that the, just the sheer number of foreign interests involved in this and the amount of actors who want to have their sway. Um, I think that, you know, the role of Turkey in this is not to be forgotten. And at this point, I would even consider Turkey not just in support of Azerbaijan, but entirely a co-belligerent of this conflict. Um, so there's a lot of different things to talk about in terms of this regard. Um, I certainly do think that, you know, th th this being an extension of the genocide um, is not a, you know, false narrative. I think that there have been very, very clear verbal cues from both Aliyev, the Prime Minister of Azerbaijan, and Erdogan in Turkey, um, that this is what they're trying to do. By bombing civilian targets, you're essentially trying to perpetrate ethnic cleansing. So, you know, the, it, it's a really tragic situation. Uh, but nonetheless, I see Armenia pulling through here, and I think there are a lot of um, Western leaders who are paying very close attention to this, which was good to see. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I'm honestly pretty uneducated about the topic, but um, honestly, I, I really, I, I totally understand. I kind of, if I were to choose a side here, I think I said earlier in the stream what my kind of, I guess, whittled down viewpoints were. Um, obviously, I, I'm seeing, I'm going to restate this, that Turkey has prevented journalism, or Azerbaijan has kind of uh, not entirely been totally impartial with regards to their journalism, and Turkey has not let American planes in to provide support to the Armenian people. Um, so I think, again, this is kind of just like, you look back in history, obviously, you talked about the Soviet Union, this is kind of just another very similar um, border conflict that's happening, that's all pretty pretty regular in this region. Um, but, yeah, no, I totally understand the uh, Armenian side, I don't really, I personally, again, and it goes back to what we said about the UN, I, I really feel that being that Turkey, and obviously countries around the area, are in, or participate in UN human rights councils, they should be saying something about this. Do you think that the UN response could be definitely more pronounced now? Do you definitely think there should be an outcry against any form of this with regards, you know, with threats of sanctions and things like that? Should there not be a level of intervention into them, a level of intervention, intervention, interventionism to this? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I certainly do think the UN has a role in, in shaming Turkey. I think that shaming countries on the world stage is important, you know, this whole idea of naming and shaming, you know, countries do not want to have their name tarnished on the international stage, that's for sure. <laughs> when it comes to Turkey, however, you know, it generally, more generally, we'd be talking about, so for example, if, you know, Egypt made some sort of incursion into Israel, or some neighboring Arab country made some sort of incursion into Israel, you would have all of the Arab states, or most of them at least, um, in the UN defending the Arab state that made the incursion. Turkey, however, is a very rogue actor. They act on their own because they have the power to do so. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the foundations of Turkey are really, really dark. I mean, Turkey as a country is probably one of the most dangerous foreign actors right now. And I say this because the way in which Turkey was founded before Turkey reformed from the Ottoman Empire, Anatolia, the place in which Turkey, you know, inhabits mm -hmm. was an incredibly diverse ethnically and religiously there was there's evidence to show up to 30 to 40 percent of the region particularly in the eastern portions was christian mm -hmm. there were greeks there was assyrians there was kurds there was uh italians there was even italians right mm -hmm. so it was it was a very diverse place now turkey is 99 percent sunni muslim and there are you know 
very few Greek minorities left, very few Armenians left, very few Assyrians left, and, you know, we can speculate about why, but there was a genocide perpetrated against them. And Turkey likes to be in control of sort of not only its own domestic affairs, but in terms of foreign policy, it likes to be the leader of the bloc, if you will. So Azerbaijan as a country has a very similar language to Turkey, is connected by a short land border, and Turkey and Azerbaijan, if you look at a map, sandwich, perfectly sandwich Armenia. So the fact that these, you know, Turkey and Azerbaijan would even consider Armenia being an aggressor here is absurd. It's absurd. Just looking at a map, you can tell, you know, who is being the aggressor here. Mm -hmm. um, the good thing about it is that neighboring countries uh, have reacted, you know, in a, in a mixed way. I would certainly say Iran, who I'm, you know, their policy I'm not particularly fond of either, but made very, very stern, you know, comments about, you know, we need to cease this conflict immediately. Uh, Russia, however, that's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Russia likes to pride itself on being sort of the protector of Christians. Mm -hmm. It's done this for hundreds of years. Since the empire, um, yep. Yeah, and they, you know, particularly in the Ottoman Empire, they wanted to exert their influence as much as possible. Because there was many mm -hmm. Orthodox Christians living there. There was many, you know, uh, Armenian Apostolic Christians living there. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was a significant role to be played. Now, however, I think that I've, I've read very compelling evidence to suggest that Russia would like to see the continuation of conflict in this region because it would give them the opportunity to build influence. And mm -hmm. if these two countries were to just settle the dispute, that stability would perhaps bring about further Western incursion. But um, I'm very glad you actually brought up the thing about the planes and American planes not being allowed. Like, this is why this matters to Americans. People ask me, why are you posting about Turkey and Armenia and Azerbaijan so much? Like, why does this matter to you? Like, I know you're Russian, and I know that used to be part of the same country, but, you know, even today, you're an American. Mm -hmm. And I say, Turkey closed off its airspace to American planes on a mission to provide humanitarian aid to a people whose civilian targets are being bombed right now. Turkey is in NATO. Turkey receives U.S. military assistance and is guaranteed in their defense, mm -hmm. okay? The fact that we provide such a service to Turkey and our planes, like, forget them not even wanting to cease the conflict. They're not letting our planes go there to provide not military aid, but humanitarian aid. Americans should be entirely outraged by this. The fact that we can, in our country, say these people are on the brink of a second genocide. We have millions of their diaspora living among us. There's so many Armenians in the U.S. We would like our government to provide some type of support to these people. We pay tax dollars to do it. The plane goes over, and one of our own allies, to which we have given millions, per perhaps billions of dollars to assistance to, wow. isn't letting this plane land. I mean, just the concept of it in and of itself is entirely absurd. I... Okay, I really agree with that statement. That's actually a very interesting standpoint that relates very well to current American politics. It's this question of, you know, it becomes an issue. It becomes our issue when our aid uh, is is no longer accepted. And, and like you brought up, they do 
they they are a NATO member with us. We've had a friendship with Turkey for a very long time. As you obviously know, we put missiles in there, long-range reaching missiles that could reach Russia, and that was kind of the breakdown of the talks with um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I really I, I like that point actually a lot that you bring up that our tax dollars are going into this um, into this mission to uh, obviously provide this again not even military aid but humanitarian aid. That's totally a great point to bring up. Um, I guess to continue on our last segment because we're around 42 minutes in and I think we've covered basically all of the bases I wanted to cover. Uh, taxation. You brought it up yourself. It's been a little bit of a topic of debate recently. Uh, Joe Biden's tax plan and Trump's tax cuts. Thoughts on your economic standpoint with regards to that? You know, I, I, I go back and forth with myself on this topic quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am happy with the pre-corona results of the Trump economy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of things within our economic system that currently need to be addressed. Um, you know, recently the news came out that the Biden tax plan would increase taxes to nearly half for people making over $400,000 a month. A ballpark. Sorry, a year. Yeah, a ballpark yeah. number was like 60% almost. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I'm, you know, largely not in agreement with. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I think in a time like this, you know, and, and, and I'm not a fan of FDR either to, you know, a large extent, but I think there are, are certain social benefit programs that during times of significant national strife need to be unrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that, you know, if we were to see a second term of Trump, that he would, you know, go back to the negotiating table with Pelosi on providing Americans with more financial aid. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think taxes are going to do much right now. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to just keep putting stimulant in the economy. We need to make sure people have money to spend so that they can go and support local businesses. I think we need to pay specific attention to small business right now. Mm-hmm. Because small businesses have struggled more than anyone, particularly because they didn't have the shipping and, and delivery capacity right. that large corporations had. And mm-hmm. because everyone was home, that was obviously critical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's plenty of things in which I think the government can improve uh, economically. So, for example, I heard an anecdote from my friend. She works, you know, a couple hours on the weekends and, you know, two out of the five um, weekdays after school. And she was working at a retail clothing store. And she estimated that while in quarantine, she would have made, she didn't make it because the store was obviously closed, mm-hmm. but she would have made roughly, you know, 1900 to $2,300. Mm-hmm. The government paid her over $10,000 in unemployment. She lives in a very nice area. Her family does very well for themselves. In no way, shape, or form did she need this government assistance. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there's plenty of other people who really can't, a lot of them can't afford groceries at this point. So I think that, you know, making the way in which we pay out citizens smarter, uh, making tax plans that are actually understandable to a lot of people Mm -hmm. and don't necessarily need to be, you know, explained to us by the powers that be, Mm -hmm. and making our tax code simpler, while on the other hand providing more nuanced and more detailed and more localized aid and support to people, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that really really beneficial and the way in which i would suggest doing that without necessarily um without necessarily raising taxes 
because I certainly think there's a lot that can be taken out of the defense budget. Um, there's other places where we can cut down. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, generally, I, 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 I think if coronavirus hadn't hit, the Trump economy would have gone down as a very, very positive one. Mm -hmm. um, but there are just still a lot of issues regarding human development that I would like to see addressed. Just because the stock market is good doesn't mean people aren't, you know, struggling. Right. Uh, and you bring up a very good point that um, is basically a, a very understood economic theory when you come towards political science. It's a, it's Keynesian theory. And it, it makes me a little bit question why you don't like FDR, which is a question I'll ask. But Keynesian theory is basically then the time of recession, which COVID is obviously a recession, small businesses closing, things like that. Government stimulant is needed to uh, reinvigorate the economy. You have uh, FDR obviously did raise taxes. People did call him a socialist. His plan was unprecedented. In fact, a whole to a total form of federalism was named after what he did in new federalism. So uh, I think now I think it's definitely like that. You have FDR's CCC, Civil and Construction 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 core you have the aaa which was agricultural relief so why don't you think fdr did a good job when it comes to that because i personally as someone who supports low taxes and uh, increased economic opportunity and almost mandated uh economic uh investment back into the people for big businesses that are getting these tax breaks I actually supported what FDR, or looking back, and I actually support the kind of reforms and social programs that FDR imposed. So why don't you have that same agreeance when you talk about this Keynesian philosophy? Well, I certainly do think that, if, first of all, I think a Keynesian response to this is, is a great way to put it. Yeah, I certainly do agree that in a time of recession, we need to stim, you know, stimulate the economy and... Um, you know, definitely, I, 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 reinvestment, I think, is, is the future. I think a lot of our money needs to be reinvested back into the community. Um, the, my issue with FDR is not even necessarily with this new deal. Uh, it's just sort of this legacy that he represents of Democrats who, you know, the, 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 the Democrat Party right now likes to pride itself as a sort of anti-racist, multicultural party of, that has, as it has always been. And the fact of the matter is, it has the worst, far worse track record when it comes to race relations um, and just overall bigotry than the Republicans do. And I, you know, I'm not somebody who likes to call racism wh wherever, but I think that, you know, FDR's in large part exclusion of black Americans from New Deal policy are a large part of the reason why, you know, we see the, some of the disparities we see today. Uh, overall, I don't necessarily think that FDR was a bad president. Uh, I think during the New Deal period in particular, he was a fantastic president. I think he made some key mistakes during World War II, which definitely could have resolved the conflict a little earlier. But uh, I like that the way in which he was deferring to our generals, people like Eisenhower, people like MacArthur, these great generals at the time, and he trusted their minds. Um, so yeah, my thoughts on FDR are definitely mixed when it comes to that. Um, but more generally, I think a lot of my, my issue with him kind of just comes from the fact, it c comes more from his legacy, it comes from the fact that Democrats, you know, like to pride themselves and champion themselves as, you know, these multicultural, you know, party of the people, when in reality, a lot of their most notable people who they will point to, which, you know, first of which will be FDR, mm -hmm. um, was in fact, you know, racist and, and, and did have a lot of racist policies. Right. So you talk about that and actually... One of the only substantial questions I've seen from the chat um, is, I guess I'll just ask it here. How do you feel about the state of African Americans in 2020? And we'll kind of recap with this or end the stream with this kind of question. 
what do you feel about their social position, political position, economic position? Because that's a good point. I actually did not know that FDR uh, discluded African Americans from his New Deal policies, and I championed those New, new Deal policies. And now that's making me reconsider. You have, you know, the executive order. I don't know what four zero three three that interned Japanese Americans was a decidedly racist aspect, but it was, I feel like, a necessary evil, and I'm going to use that very sparingly, a necessary evil during a, during a time of possible um, espionage and things like that. So I guess we'll just close with the segment that um, was brought up. Uh, what do you think about the state of African Americans in 2020 and now as opposed to 1930s? There is a lot to be said, and this is a subject I'm very passionate about, but I have to you know, mitigate my sort of ideas within my mindset and also understand that these issues don't affect me as directly as they would affect the black person. So I try to speak on this, you know, very sparingly. Um, but what I will say is that during the 1950s and the 60s, you saw very strong black family units. You saw, you know, the fatherless rate was incredibly low, lower than actually the white population. Uh, you had very self-sufficient uh, religious communities um, where, you know, black people were able to live in urban centers, although suppressed by, you know, redlining and all these other policies that, you know, made their life more difficult. I would say their economic position during that time was certainly much better than it is now. Now, I think where the real injustice happened to African Americans, and I would say, you know, obviously they have a very long history of injustice, but the most recent one uh, um, was just the fact the breakup of the black family. Mm -hmm. I think this is something you see a lot of black conservatives talking about, and a lot of liberals like to go, oh, that's just some alt-right talking point, you know, that, you know, this is just some, like, token black guy that Trump supporters picked out and told them what to say. But it is actually a very, very true and very good point. And it's also a point that plenty of socialists and communists and left-wing black people make, that the breakdown of the black family was a significant factor in the economic development of black people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I th think there have been another very large injustice done to them is the presence of gatekeepers, people who just take money, people like Samuel L. Jackson, uh, people like Sharpton, people like just that just stand there and arguably people like Obama mm -hmm. who don't do much for their community give lip service and don't reinvest any actual money back into the black community and I would say mm -hmm. if you talk to most black people who live in uh, low-income black communities Chicago urban ones Chicago for example they'll even tell you a lot of them are starting to see through the Obama sort of glory years propaganda their lives weren't necessarily improved um, I think Black Lives Matter today is sort of an expression of this very serious anger about what has been done to them, about what has sort of th this amalgam, huge amalgamation of factors that have, you know, manifested in their modern condition. Now, this is not to say that there are plenty, and when I talk about communities, I'm talking about very specific urban, low-income black communities. The average black man in America who's going, who's starting his own business, who's working, who's being successful, that is, you know, obviously this directly applies to him. But he was able to sort of supersede a lot of those barriers and, you know, become, you know, j just like many other millions of Americans. Um, I think right now Black Lives Matter is a... It's, it's, it's such a difficult thing to talk about because the movement seems to evolve, you know, every couple of weeks. I would say in the beginning, you know, of this 
of, the, uh, of these protests with the death of George Floyd, I was, you know, horrified by that video. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, most people would be, and they were. They were. I mean, uh, my entire family was, and plenty of people I know who are incredibly conservative said, that's terrible, these guys should be fired and, you know, put in jail. Right. Um, and I think the res reason why the amount of social tension happened was because the Black Lives Matter movement, just as it had been during Trayvon Martin and all the other incidents of black men being killed, uh, was hijacked by ideologues. It was mm -hmm. hijacked by socialists. It was hijacked by uh, uh, people with ulterior motives. Um, totally agree with that. It was, you know, it, it, it no longer was a really a social movement. It was a left-wing movement discussing, you know, th th this very, th through the framework of a very, very specific interpretation of blackness in America. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of pe black people who disagreed with it. There are plenty of black people who fundamentally disagreed with it, but in essence agreed with the message and went out to protest anyways. Um, so th there's a lot of factors involved in this. And just to chalk it up to white police officers are killing us and we need to be, you know, the, the, whatever else her talking points are is very, 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 you know, disingenuous. And you might be surprised to hear this, but I personally agree with reparations through a form of investment. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with just giving black people money and accounting, okay, how much was slavery worth and dividing it by the amount of black people? That's foolish. Mm -hmm. But I agree with saying, you know what, historical injustice was done to this people. You know, there are still ongoing social issues, a lot of which are being exacerbated by the government. Let's take a certain portion of our budget and devote it to investing in, you know, black communities, black-owned businesses, all of that. So do it within a capitalist framework. Don't give handouts to people. Make sure none of this money goes to people who are just going to use it for drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said about, about reinvesting in the black community. Well, you know, I actually really totally agree with that. And I like that you put it into a more capitalist framework. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, I think there's so much more that could have been done. You bring up the 50s and the 60s and the black household and the concept of, you know, urbanization during the time. I think that Black Lives Matter needs to focus more on those issues and not only rise up in popularity. You know, obviously they were formed in 2013. They really flare up in Twitter hashtags and things like that. Election year is when they do. I think it needs to be a constant nonpartisan thing. And I'm always going to bring this point up that Act Blue is um, funded largely in part. And if you go to their donate page, it is actblue.com, which is the, one of the largest Democrat PACs um, that t today they have millions of Democrat party members. I think that black lives should not be a political matter, like you said. And I agree, actually, that I think any form of reparation, any form of government you know, handout for the sins of our history, I think should be reappropriated into investment that the an economic opportunity like certain job programs and things like that for minorities i totally agree with that what i don't agree with though is when it comes to education and information that's where i start to draw the line i think obviously welfare like you talked about is an important way of uh building back up these um these minority communities and i'm totally for that but i think again as you said it's going to all t kinds of the wrong people the wrong hands you know and and that's another point that i want to kind of wrap up with because we are nearing the hour point uh if you want to add any closing statements after this obviously um that uh welfare is it's not really meant to be a huge uh, way of life 
in my opinion. I think it needs to be a mode of experience. I think it needs to be a mode of basic conditions, meaning you pay for your, your basic living conditions, very that. And I think jobs need to be, be a little bit more inclusive at the lower levels um, and letting mo more minorities in who have been disproportionately affected by our history. I'm not going to sit here and ignore that. But um, you have things like that, but I don't think that this is... I feel like it's going to a point where it's becoming way more partisan, polarized, like you said, and I don't agree at all with where it's going. So uh, being that we're at basically the 58-minute mark... Um, do you have any closing statements you want to add before I end the stream and thank everyone that uh, joined and gave good questions and things like that? Do you have any other lasting comments you want to say? Society, foreign policy, anything? I would say to, you know, and uh, to, really to me, this is just a, a Zoom call. So to everybody who's uh, watching, mm -hmm. I would say if, you're, if you have interest in these topics, especially when it comes to foreign relations right now, watch very, very closely. Because there is a lot of nuance that is lost in the media. Like, I would, reading foreign policy is like reading a book. You mm -hmm. are, if you don't listen closely and read closely, you are going to miss some serious details. And these details have the cap capability to predict decades of foreign policy down the line. Mm -hmm. So I would say watch closely, um, hold your government to a high level of accountability, um, speak out i don't think we speak out enough when it comes to american allies whose ideas we fundamentally fundamentally disagree with and if you're ever curious why do we associate ourselves with this kind of country do the research see what economic incentives are involved see you know what perhaps corruption is going on behind the scenes and if you come to the conclusion that this is detrimental to america and the american people don't be afraid to speak out on foreign policy issues just as much as you speak out on domestic policy issues. I think that's an excellent closing point for a more foreign policy-centered discussion. So I want to thank everyone for... I want to thank you, first and foremost, for accepting this invitation. Obviously, a lot of people are kind of reluctant to be on this podcast as their futures could depend on what they say on social media and things like that. And I really appreciate you stepping forward and giving your take um, I think definitely nothing that was said here was anything, any any form of ignorant or racist or anything. So I totally appreciate you coming on the podcast. We're definitely going to have more episodes with you and more politically learned people. We're going to try to get this again a movement towards uh, looking towards intellectual discussion. We look at the last presidential debate it was not intellectual discussion. We need more intellect. Not at all. We need more intellectual discussion. We need more thought-provoking debate like this. So thank you for coming on. Thank you to everyone who was in the stream. I really appreciate it, even though a lot of the comments are just, you know, shit. Um, thank you, all of you, for supporting in whatever ways you did. Uh, and that's it. So thanks a lot, everyone. And